Hi, and welcome to Contourcast. My name's Kat Boyd. And I'm David Jameson. So, <laughs> sorry, I absolutely forgot what I was doing there. But that is um, indicative of exactly what my brain is like right now. Yeah, mine's a uh, full core brain by this point. I mean, I put out a tweet the other day, I don't know if you saw it, where I asked if anyone else was suffering from this kind of like core brain damage that that I seem to be suffering badly from. And, you know, I got a lot of replies saying, yes, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of um, when I was a kid, we went on holiday to France and the one and only time I ever went to a zoo, we went to this French zoo and all the animals had gone mad. it was was like a carnival of insane animals right and uh, the more magnificent they were the more insane they were so like polar bear and uh, elephants especially crazy and they were just they were sort of doing repetitive motions over and over again because they've been driven mad by being confined into these artificial spaces that's kind of what i feel like Uh, i think that that's probably the first stage of quarantine is the madness when I was a kid, I used to, um, every hug money, I'd go with my dad to the old Glasgow Zoo, which doesn't exist anymore. I think it got shut down for um, like health and safety and animal welfare concerns. Mm-hmm. We went one hug money and there was no, I mean, who goes to the zoo on hug money? I think my mum just wanted us out the house uh, for a couple of hours. <laughs> we, got a, we got a tour, like a personal tour from the zookeeper. And he took us into like all the hidden like animal enclosure bits. And I just this, have this overarching memory of a very, very sad rhino. Mm-hmm. You know, this once majestic beast that would roam the plains of Glasgow Zoo <laughs> was just, <laughs> it looked so sad. So I wonder if maybe insanity is the first point and then just like you real just ab- abject horror and resignation at your fate. I don't know what happened to those animals. I don't have a happy ending for that story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if there is a happy ending, I think zoos are just closing down all over the place. Well, the happy ending is that I guess it's now a beef eater chain restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's so it's supplied by you know industrial farming. <laughs> Even more grim. By the way, I should say on that point, I, I recently watched um, Michael Moore's new film. Uh-huh. Um, this is garnering a lot of uh, controversy. Um, it's called Planet of the Humans, and it's basically an attack upon the renewable energies industry um, as useless in terms of environmental protection and is massively destructive. Um, but its conclusion, um, and you wonder what's going on with some people's heads, its conclusion is Malthusian. Its, its argument is... Um, we need to reduce the population and basically abandon industrial society, right? (laughs) Um, Which isn't going to happen. But the more interesting, I mean, the more useful part of the film is that um, it's, if if you thought, and you you might think that there was a part of capitalism which was moving in a more sustainable direction, it completely busts that bubble. Like, um, it's hilarious, some of it. It's weird, I'd never even thought of it. So the processes to make solar panels release huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere, completely undoing the, the minimal 
you know, energy gathering capacities that it has. I mean, this is, this happens already, like in Scotland. So when there was the closure, the threatened closure of the Bifab yards where they were making the jackets for um, the the wind turbines what, what yeah. they're wind turbines aren't they yeah um when they were making like the the, the sleeves for those uh like the, the, the arms yeah. <laughs> yeah blades that's what i meant um when that the yard was uh getting closed down the contract was then going to be i think it was like going to be indonesia i want to say mm-hmm. but like someone calculated the carbon footprint of making those sleeves in indonesia transporting them back to scotland for use in a wind farm like in fife <laughs> like the, it, would, it would take hundreds of years for this wind farm to cancel out the carbon footprint of the transportation of of these uh these jackets yeah and, and it also takes on the whole the biomass thing right which is sounds like it's doing something environmentally friendly and what it's actually just doing uh, is cutting trees that's all biomass means so oil Let's is, say that again is, you went a little bit life. um you went a little bit darth vader there <laughs> uh, the, tell yeah, me again biomass, about biomass <laughs> biomass is just uh it sounds like an insult doesn't it biomass yeah. is what i'm increasingly becoming <laughs> in lockdown <laughs> Someone's um, gonna like roll down their car window one day when I'm jogging oh, past. Hey, biomass, yeah. <laughs> Can't move on biomass. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's that's just burning trees, right? So oil and coal is what happens to plant life um, once it's been pressurized underground for yeah. millennia or whatever. Um, yeah, I know that. <laughs> so, so, but I just I find that ironic that the the, the solution to burning that version of like fossilized plant life is just to burn it before it becomes fossils. So do you know what I mean? It's, it, um, it's pretty desperate stuff. Um, so why it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty uh, shocking watch to be honest and his, you know, pretty morbid before I watched it. And now I just think, man, this is, uh, <laughs> this is a real mess. Uh, we're in. I haven't really watched anything in quarantine for a while because my capacity for concentration is so poor. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. can't sit still to watch something. At the start, I was doing loads of reading, and now I'm not. Now I'm just sort of vegetating. Uh, but uh, quarantine is going to be getting lifted over the next three weeks. Um, sort of. So, we, we we don't really know what's happening yet. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, I think it's definitely like busier outside. You know, it I think is, like yeah. as people adjust to the measures, people are finding ways to try and you know gain some new normality. Um, you know, people are getting into their rituals of you know going to the shop and exercising that sort of thing. Um. And people are, you know, for seven weeks now have been maintaining the the clapping ritual, which we should talk about. Yeah. Um, are you still taking part? I'm going to be totally honest and say no. Um, and I, look, my attitude to this whole thing throughout has been, as with any mass popular public response to a crisis situation, 
Um, it contains elements which are both obviously progressive, like people are joining together to express a mood of public solidarity, mm. you know, with vulnerable groups of workers and, and so on. Um, but as, as well as that, it also contained elements of sort of, um, I don't know, a, a version of national unity which is regressive or whatever, or is trying to basically stamp out any dissent that might emerge during the period. And also just didn't address the, the the reality, the class reality, if you like, of the situation. I'm not saying, by the way, that I'm against people clapping or whatever, <laughs> but I, but I, I I feel it's gotten to such a stage where um, the people we're applauding are being cannibalized. Like the people we're applauding are dying. They're dying, right? They're dying. And it it's starting to feel. Uh, I don't know, a bit insulting. Um, that because I mean we now have we now have the highest death rate in Europe, which is the most affected continent in the world. So we have lost. I mean we Britain has fucked it more royally than perhaps any other country. And at least by some metrics, that is just the case. And and our our national political organism, if you like, refuses to recognise it, refuses to accept it. Um, so far, most outlets in the media have simply not reported that fact. Yeah, I mean, I think that the clap, <laughs> talking about just saying the clap, the is, clap yeah. make, makes me laugh. The national um, clap. The national clap. I mean, I understand the, the ritual of it. Like when I'm, you know, looking out the window and seeing people do it it's mostly families it's a lot of kids and I understand that it does provide a sense of routine and ritual during a time that's essentially chaotic and if people are furloughed and kids aren't at school then there's a lack of like sense of routine so I I, I mean I'm not saying that people shouldn't clap like I would be really clear about that but I mean it's not it's not real action um you know I remember when you know, we'd see scenes from Italy. I think that's where it first started. There was a, they did this similar thing, but it was also, you know, juxtaposed with these scenes of real horror about what was happening on the ground. Um, you know, people's like real suffering. And I feel like the the clapping is kind of, it's part of this um, like enforced national cheeriness, you know, mm-hmm. like this kind of like, oh, you know everything will be okay stick a rainbow in the window and let's clap for nhs workers and it's like yeah we've got the worst death toll in europe like where's the reality and i feel like there's a sense of you know this isn't the time for politics it's time that you know we're all you know just get behind our you know nhs and clap them i mean what is a clap if not like something that happens at the end of a performance like that's what that that's that's what clapping is isn't it um, I guess it's a gesture of, it could be seen as a gesture of gratitude, but gratitude ain't going to pay the bills for people. Yeah, and I have, like, se- I have seen some people protesting. Like I have seen, um, there was a, a whole street in Bristol had a protest for PPE uh, at the time of the clap and stuff like that. So, so there are like, you know, There are pockets of it for yeah. sure, but there's also the sense of, A, if you don't clap, and B, if you try to critique the clap, that you are, do you know what I mean? You're basically a, a traitor or, you know, part of the problem. 
I feel like. Can, can I say in all of the, so I, I've looked at some of the sort of um, photo logs that the BBC or the Guardian or whoever have compiled during this period of, you know, the street events, clapping and sing songs and, and social distance street parties and shit like that, right? And, you know, you can go on the BBC or the Guardian, as I say, or any other newspaper and see 20 photographs of these street events. Every single one of them is a, is a middle class street. Mm. Every single one of them is like an upper middle class street, obviously affluent. I'm not saying that's where the clapping is going on. What I'm saying is that's a very curated image of what the country is. It's a very deliberately curated yeah. image of... Um, I, I remember listening to this um, series about the history of Radio 4, put out by Radio 4, and they were very candid in it and said, Radio 4 represents the English middle class's self-image. And we're very, we very self-consciously set out to represent the English middle class's self-image back to itself because we feel that that is the core national identity, essentially. And the British media has always had a pro project of trying to uphold that, uphold that core national mm. identity. And if you look at all of the images of the way people have engaged in that, not just the applauding, but all kinds of stuff, street art and musical performances and stuff, it's so painfully that. I mean, it, you know what I mean? Um, you won't see a single rundown street, uh, and I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm fascinated by that as well. A very particular image of the of the clapping has emerged. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think it would be less nippy if, at the same time, you didn't have Matt Hancock saying this is not the right time to talk about pay rises for frontline workers in the NHS. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think it would be less nippy, but I see. I think that the left like people like ourselves and, and others on the left are going to have to make some very difficult and unpopular arguments around this very soon. Um, like the nice rainbows and the ha literally happy clapping, you know, mm -hmm. where in other countries, you know, you're, you're faced with like somber faces and the harsh reality uh, presented um, as much as possible. But we're going to have to make some uncomfortable arguments that, these the rainbows and the clapping are naff at best and at uh, worst I think they, at worst there are i mean this is literally how like the dominant ideology operates do you know what i mean so first of all like i mean how society should work like what the goals are of the dominant ideology and those in control is that there's a sense of all in it togetherness and we're not all in it together like we know that um and the methods by which that ideology works is that, you know, <laughs> the, the personal responsibility has now gone beyond the, the kind of personal responsibility. And it's a like deep individual responsibility that the worst thing you can do at the moment is to go and sunbathe in a park when you probably don't, when you don't have a garden, if you go sunbathe in the park, you're, you know, really undermining the British fight against coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, rather than it being like a lack of PPE or no no actual uh, plan for you know stopping people dying on mass in care homes and um, no mass testing um, and also like this kind of mm, sense of you know that that extreme individual responsibility is coming is coming out when people are grassing in their neighbours 
to the police for going out twice a day or you know for not obeying the rules like that kind of authoritarianism I think it tells us a lot about how the like dominant ideology of neoliberalism works and and the other the other part of that by the way has been a total falling away of any holding to public account of top of senior political figures um Boris Johnson most notably, I mean, we talked about how um, his illness was kind of used to protect him from criticism. A kind of, you know, it's proof certain that we're all in it together. Boris Johnson was very sick. Mm. It's proof certain we're all in it together that Matt Hancock, who, uh, you know, is out clapping on the roof of, the, you know, some building or something, right? Um, but also... Um, I kind of didn't want to bring this up, but I'm I'm just going to do it. Um, now, I'm not right. So yesterday in the Parliament, Neil Finlay uh, mm. asked, the, asked, asked Nicholas Sturgeon a question about um, why elderly people were getting sent home from hospitals uh, to, uh, um, to old people's homes, uh, to care homes without having been tested for coronavirus. Uh, in her answer in a roundabout way, she accepted that that was a thing that was happening, right? Which is obviously so lethal and, and dangerous. Um, there are now, there have been several care homes in Scotland where almost all of the residents ended up with coronavirus. That is a disgraceful situation. Um, Incredible, actually, an incredible failure by the UK government and by the Scottish government, and not just this government, subsequent generations of governments where, with care homes, we've built up a system where people work too long, don't have enough money, are carrying too much of a debt burden to look after their elderly relatives. Elderly relatives have to go into care homes, people are living longer, um, at where the, I'm, I'm not pointing any fingers at any particular care homes like the ones that have been affected during the coronavirus, but we know that abuse is widespread uh, at, at these care homes. This is a whole system that has developed over decades, right? So I'm not just apportioning the blame to the governments that are in charge. But Nicola Sturgeon cried when she answered that question. And do you know what, like, um, I'm sure that, you know, politicians are human beings. I'm sure she is emotionally affected by the crisis. But then she said, don't ask me these questions as though I don't care, right? And I just, that's the bit that annoyed me because I thought, you caring doesn't change anything. I, 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 I really object to this kind of thing of like, don't criticize me because I care. Don't criticize me because I have emotions. Using your, the sort of, empathetic equality of human beings to completely remove yourself from a position of responsibility in the situation. And by the way, I said that at the time, can you imagine like the, the gnashing of teeth and the flailing of arms that would, that would then have um, happened? Because Scotland is so saturated in this stuff. It's so saturated in the use of sentimentality as a shield to bar away political um, responsibility. And listen, like Scotland is one of the worst affected parts of Europe. 
by this virus. And obviously some of the blame for that falls at the feet of the UK government because of the system that we have. It is ridiculous to say that the responsibility doesn't also lie with the Scottish government. I don't think anyone would seriously make that argument. They just wouldn't talk about it. You know what I mean? They'd share, they'd share a video of Nicola Sturgeon crying and say, don't say I don't care about this. But the interrogate why we have these astronomically high death rates. I mean, sure. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's nothing really that I can add to that. Um, what you're pointing out isn't just a, a specific incident relating to Nicola Sturgeon. What I've noticed is a phenomenon in the last, particularly the last five years, um, but it's probably been going on longer than that, where politicians desire to present themselves as like one of the people, mm. um, you know, to have a, like a pop idol-esque backstory. Um, the more like difficult and hard, the better. Um, and to, for that to be used as some kind of political capital or prove um, their, their worthiness, you know, I think that, I think that's a really bad thing for politics. I mean, I think it, it, it gets politicians into a situation where they are um, less able to be held to account. I mean, you, you hear it in the sort of, you know, well, you know, I grew up in a, like, a housing estate or, you know, I worked minimum wage jobs, like, as a kind of, as, a, as part of the qualification for the decisions that you make and the things that you say and do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's much broader than what you say. I mean, I don't. Doubt, I mean, I would imagine being in charge right now. It, it must be horrific. Yeah, yeah. Brutal, brutal. Not up for it. I mean, I can barely remember like what day it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's a horrible situation. I mean, waking up to those kind of um, that death toll every day and having to talk about it and having to and so on. Right. I get it. I just. Uh, I'm. I, I mean, I think the longer I've stayed in lockdown, the more angry I've become at Scottish politics in general uh, and, and the situation that we've found ourselves in. So the other day, uh, and I suppose this will be coming out soon, we were in a, uh, a podcast with some Welsh uh, comrades discussing these questions, devolution and the coronavirus and how it's all been handled and so on. Since then, some level of divergence it's, yeah. it's, it's become apparent that uh, some level of divergence in the timing of the lifting of lockdown has emerged between yeah. England on the one hand and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland on the other. Yeah, that podcast isn't going to age well. No, <laughs> um, but to be honest, like um, I, I, I said, I said on that podcast that uh, that really nothing had been done to diverge. But to be honest, I mean, even the divergence we're talking about now is very limited it's going to be a question of the pacing of the reintroduction of um uh you know people back into the workforce and so on mm. um it's going to be a difference of degree rather than a difference of policy uh, as such as far as i can tell so far but even that to be honest um just made me annoyed because i thought right you're doing it now we could have diverged at any point um, I know a, a political calculation was made to not diverge because of the political crisis that that would have undoubtedly created between yeah. London and Edinburgh. 
and the fact that we don't have a politics in this country which is prepared for that kind of political crisis. And, and it's not, again, this is not just a, a grim reality of life under a capitalist state. In Catalonia, they, they have been prepared for all of the criticisms that you could make, and you could make a lot of the leadership of the independence movement in Catalonia, which is a centre-right mm. <laughs> political force, right? The biggest part, um, or it was at the time. Um, but they, they were still, they still had uh, the wherewithal to organise a really serious confrontation with central state power. And I'm just, I, I'm, I'm really kind of like straining at the harness of uh, Scottish politics at the moment. It's just deeply infuriating. Um, I'm going to suggest that that's not a new thing. Like it might have, yeah. like that frustration at Scottish politics may have taken on a a new a new dynamic. But I mean, I've been frustrated with politics in Scotland for a lot longer. I think I'm just getting more and more evidence for yeah. those frustrations. You know, like I think it was dead noticeable when, you know people like ourselves on the left were complaining about the lack of divergence that Richard Leonard was talking about how the Scottish government shouldn't be divergent and it should be a four nations approach. And uh, you know, that's, that's the TUC's line. It's bananas. It's totally bananas. I mean, it's clear that the Scottish government like are to, are to the left of the UK government in policy terms. Like uh -huh. there's no denying that. So why would, why would you not like argue for, the maximum things that you can get from that government to protect the maximum number of people. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, the other thing that's driving me bananas is the heroes narrative. The heroes, yes. the heroes are yeah. our, our NHS angels and heroes. I mean, I know plenty of people who work in the NHS, the jobs that they do are hard and um, they are chronically underpaid, often chronically understaffed uh, and, and, ordinary times like i mean if you can call a decade of austerity ordinary times i don't know but um they're now doing those jobs in extraordinary circumstances without any like without decent ppe there's still like loads of gaps um with ppe it's a do you know i mean it just makes me fucking angry when i see happy like oh human spirit news stories about some school child printing off masks on their 3d printer like is that what this has come to and yeah. then like nhs workers being told that they are heroes and i'm not sickened by that narrative because they're not like they're not they're not like or that i think that they're bad people it's because that is i think that is a deliberate construction promoted by the government and the media to talk about public sector workers, particularly NHS workers, as vocational subjects. Mm. So people who do things because they, you know, really feel and love at this job and want to make a difference. Now, I don't doubt that's why a lot of people go and work for the NHS. People know that it's, it's low paid, that it's hard work, that it's understaffed. People know that and they go into it to think they can make a difference. I think for a lot of people that I've spoken to, then the reality hits and it's like, wow, this is systematic. This is a giant systemic issue about austerity. Um, and that this hero's chat just, to me, it says people do this out of the goodness of their hearts. People mm. step up to the plate of the goodness of their hearts and they're not going to get a pay rise and they won't get proper PPE and their collateral damage 
like in the government's war rhetoric like yeah. it's a mess it's a mess and it's really it's just uh incredibly frustrating i i i see this as just another way to evade responsibility if if a hero dies inevitably it's a, it's in battle and it's part it's, it's of the fight yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and you don't you don't have to treat them as a casualty which is what they are and you don't have to treat them as, and all those people who are overworked i mean mental health problems among nurses and stuff must be appalling at the moment all of that damage that's going on all that trauma that's going on, i mean there must like must be thousands of people newly traumatized by this situation right yeah but all of that becomes a necessary sacrifice rather than a public policy disaster which is what it is rather than a public policy failure on on behalf of the it's the criminal government. negligence that's yeah. what we need to call it it's criminal negligence that yeah. people on the front line are dying like it is and someone has to be or institutions like the government have to be held accountable and the longer this hero's narrative or angel's narrative drags on the less likely that is to happen so to nhs workers who might be listening this is not because we don't appreciate what you do it's because we believe like most of you probably do that the government should be held accountable for what they have done or what they've not done um and by the way you know there's there's capacity idling like as we speak the private healthcare system has not been converted over as it could have been into the National Health Service. The, the, every, every step of this way, even when some of that stuff was done, even when companies have been brought into supplying PPE or private healthcare has given over some of their capacity, it was negotiated, it was paid for, there were deals done, right? Deals were getting cut with giant corporations. Mm while nurses went without PPE and while patients went without hospital wards, right? Honestly, that to me is just disgusting. I think in a a situation of a national emergency, like the entire nation accepted that we couldn't go and hang out in the park or in the pub or the cinema or whatever anymore, right? The state pushed itself into the public sphere and said, sorry, we're confiscating a lot of your liberties, right? And some of those are profound, by the way, some of those things are our right to demonstrate, our right to go on industrial action, our right to vote. In this pandemic crisis, um, billions of people have been denied votes that were coming their way, right? So these are these are big things, right? And But you have to say, in a state of crisis of this scale, mm. of course you want there to be a society that can act in that in that way. I might not necessarily like it to be the state that's doing it or the way it's being done in this regard or whatever, but that's an inevitable thing. It's childish to, to think it isn't. Why don't those same rules apply to the huge corporations which are failing to supply PPE, are failing to hand over their excess capacity? Why doesn't the state act with the same veracity? At the end of the Second World War, 75 years since uh, BE Day, it was completely the other way around. When the state went to people with demands, they went to the heads of industry. You know what I mean? You know, when, when 20% of the commanding heights of the economy was nationalised during the war and in the years afterwards, it was seen as the state's special prerogative to talk to huge yeah. productive forces and say, because it's a crisis, I decide you do this now. Um, now the, the, 
the balance is is after decades of neoliberalism, the balance is just so completely different. And these massive corporations are the ones whose it's like this weird distortion of like the ideas of some liberal thinker like Mills or something like that. Um, the the rights of individuals are easily curtailable. The rights of corporations, not so much. You know, it's such a it's such an ugly bastardization of that of that kind of liberal attitude. I mean, it's a, it's it's a very telling one. It's very telling. I think you're hitting on a point about you know the state intervention after the Second World War, going to heads of industry, like going to those captains of industry in order to like forward certain demands. But under neoliberalism, like there's, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons that's not going to happen. But one that I see is very much a psychic problem in, the, the, in terms of the impact that neoliberalism has had on like the population psyche, which is the the state will no longer look to, you know, social forces like be it like the church or the unions or heads of industry in order to, you know, placate the population or give the population their demands. What will happen is that there will be a sort of like a kind of self-care narrative. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like this is your responsibility to look after yourself. Um, you know, as part of that like cult. I mean, the culture of narcissism, that people achieve salvation not through making demands of capital, making demands of the state, but instead being told repeatedly that through therapy and self-care that you can, you can gain a personal improvement or you can manage your mental health or you can gain mental health. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do you know, I was going to say this to you because um, I know this is like a major area of interest to you, the, the whole self-care thing. I don't know if you saw this, but the Labour Party, so obviously under Keir Starmer, the Labour Party doesn't really do politics anymore or criticism. You know, Sorry, can I just do a sidebar on this? Have you yeah. seen Keir Starmer's clapping video? Uh, is, he, is he totally robotic in that? Oh. I've not seen it. I mean... It's the most insincere thing you've ever seen. It's Keir Starmer clapping, right, for the cameras. And then he goes, is that you got enough now? <laughs> oh, God. I That's mean, not a good look. I mean, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, um, sorry you were saying. Yeah, so Labour Party comms have started putting out um, uh, self-care messaging. So they put out a, a graphic, which was like, someone like wrapped in a blanket meditating right like a little cartoon and um it said things to do to kind of help you through the crisis and it was things like read a book um take time to do mindfulness or meditation or whatever and that to me was like really it was really scary like uh, i mean i i follow all the kind of because uh you know i'm supposed to be a journalist i follow all the comms accounts of all the parties right the sea change in labels is hilarious and very creepy, right? So on the one hand, Keir Starmer is now openly saying, I won't criticise the government because I see that as inappropriate in a time of national crisis. So what has he got left to say? What he's got is to tell you, you know, people who are supposed to be depending on political opposition to read a book or, you know, drink a, drink a warm mug of hot chocolate or, you know, I mean, like, you know, take a night out for yourself or whatever. 
it's awful, man. It's so bad. It's so degenerated. Um, and it, the th thing that struck me about all that is, this is, do you know that, that self, I always, I always have to, I always remember back to school and it was in one of those pastoral and social education classes, right? Which are always hilarious, right? And one of the things they taught us once that was when you were stressed out, right? At school or wherever, you should adopt this kind of turtle position, right? Where you put your head and your, your, your head in between your arms and cover your head, right? And just say, I'm in my turtle position now, right? So I don't want to be involved in whatever's going on. And I remember actually saying to the teacher at the time, have you any idea how badly bullied you would be if you ever actually did that? That would not put you in a less stressful situation. But that, that just protects your head from the, from, the beating that you're getting. That just protects your head from the inevitable punches and kicks that would then pile up on you. But I just, the thing is, that kind of mindfulness and stuff, you, you see articles like this in The Guardian and stuff all the time, like when it's okay for you just to time out and things like that. So if you're at work and you're really stressed, listen, in an ideal world, I, I think this, this should be the case. If you're really stressed, you can just say, sorry, I can't hack this and go home, right? Um, but I just think, what world are you people living in? Like, but that's not, that's not what's <laughs> happening in workplaces. What's happening in workplaces is that workplaces, employers are promoting the same stuff employers are promoting meditation and mindfulness and wow. i think that that i do think that meditation as part of like a practice is a positive thing right but i mean it's been it's been completely marketized as well mm. i mean this is something that's existed for as long as humans have existed like the mm. idea of meditation it's an ancient yeah. practice and um, mostly associated with like a religious or spiritual belief which it has become completely decoupled from and it's been adopted as I see by real like tech bro. I mean, it's Silicon Valley. It's like the Californian ideology that we've mm. talked about before on the pod. Um, but to hear that the, the real opposition are now, <laughs> are now promoting so this as a strategy is, I mean, it's sick. I actually think that's sick. Like what we need, I mean, imagine Corbyn was in charge right now and able to just stand at the dispatch box and say repeatedly, Where's the PPE? Yeah. Where's the fucking PPE? I know, like, I know. Can you imagine if Corbyn had put that out? Do you know what I mean? Meditating shit. But this is, I mean, Corbyn... He never would have. Uh, yeah, but he did put out this... And this is, I never really liked this kinder, gentler politics stuff. Oh, God, yeah. You remember that? that? The hiding right. for nothing. Yeah, that kinder, gentler... I mean, people don't want like a kinder gentler politics no. people want agency and like do you know what i mean people need a squad they need yeah. honors honors that's what people need like this is a fight like and whether we don't want to see it as a fight or not doesn't change the substantive fact that there is a huge conflict of interests between the rich and the poor between capital and labor like you know you can't take away from that is the material reality of the situation so we can put rainbows in our windows all we want we can continue to clap all we want if it makes you feel better then fire in but like it can't take away from the fact that this is a there is a there is a war going on and it's not just against coronavirus there's a mm. war going on and only like one side is going to win and that's really what politics is about it's 
it, it's about who wins and who loses yeah mm-hmm. part of that is like morals and values but really if we want to if we want to make radical change then we have to be able to win politically yeah shouldn't have read all that machiavelli <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me and david are in a a, a gramsci reading group it's been good yeah uh, it's it's been uh well worth it to kind of chew over contemporary uh events um i also I wanted to talk about um ben's article that we've got on the website www.conter.co.uk yeah that's the world wide web uh, Do you remember the Witty Web? The Witty Web? Witty Web. No. You never heard of Witty Web? No. It's the name of Anne Widdicombe's website. Oh. That, that, I find her hard to hate, man. Do you know what I mean? She's just one of these people, she's so obviously just unhinged that uh, hard to I, dislike I don't know if it's level. still there, but yeah, she had a the website called web. the Witty Web and it was like full of pictures of her cats. <laughs> Some broad oh, man, old Dan Withercombe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I this is Ben's article about. Uh, oh, I'm not going to try and pronounce the economist's name, but he, he, yeah, um, he wrote a famous essay about uh, unemployment in the 1940s and queried i suppose i don't really know much about the history but it's a it's a pretty standard if you like keynesian argument about um uh coming to grips with why why the ruling class doesn't want something which under most circumstances they should want full employment the full mobilization of human resources and the economy you would have thought I mean, um, that's the, I think that the, the main point that Kalecki makes is that the, the economic arguments for full employment are, they're obvious. Mm-hmm. Like the, the economic arguments are essentially one and that it's political, ideological opposition to full employment on the grounds of, um, you know, a dislike of state intervention a dislike of public spending and a like deep-rooted dislike of the social and political consequences of full mm-hmm. employment and what would, yeah. what would happen to like well, ultimately in Ben's article he talks about it as like class consciousness in the event of full unemployment when you know lab- labor power becomes so strong yeah. um, under full employment yeah um you're no longer afraid of the sanction of, of being sacked. Um, yeah, yeah. But like, what's interesting about Ben's article is that he he takes that position um, that that Kalecki outlined um, that the social position of the boss essentially is undermined, and the class consciousness of the working class would expand. There would be strikes for wage increases, um, and then strikes for improvements at work, and that would create political tension mm-hmm. um, and the the ruling class you know their instinct tells them that that's that <laughs> not desirable mm-hmm. um, and the unemployment having the quote reserve army of labor is it's, a, it's an integral part of the the capitalist system but ben takes that 
and talks about like, you know, is that still a relevant analysis in today's world? And actually there haven't been a lot of discussions about full employment as a demand, yeah. like, you know, coming out of this crisis. In fact, I see way more people talking about UBI than saying mm-hmm. full employment, like a guaranteed job for a, a livable, decent wage for anyone who wants it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting as well. I think that's partly a legacy of uh, and what appears at this point. It's still hard to say. It's still early days, I suppose, in this development. Um, I mean, uh, automation has not so far had the uh, consequence of the destruction of jobs. So one of the things about UBI is that it emerged from a kind of thought world in some parts of left-wing academia where widespread automation was inevitable and imminent. Um, and and this, I kind of respect this uh, instinct in a sense that um, the change in the labour market should not lead to mass unemployment and re- the redundancy of large areas of the workforce. And instead, we could use this as a way to reimagine humans' productive relationships. You supply them with what they need and then people can go and do things like volunteer in the community or become artists or whatever, right? Um, but it's not transpiring. It's not happening. Um, mm. And, I, I mean, there's some discussions out there about why that is that are rather too involved. Uh, uh, and I don't entirely understand. Economists are trying to explain uh, why that's not really happening. I mean, one is the really basic stuff. So, like, I think people always had this attitude that... Uh, it would be low-paid jobs that were automated. But middle-class jobs, um, uh, a lot of middle-class professional jobs are much easier to automate than working-class jobs in the modern economy. Uh, a robot or a computer can't be a waitress or a nurse or a bin man or uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? I tell but- you, like, on my hobby horse of civil servants, the, there was a ONS study into automation that put 50% of like government and national administration jobs aka like civil servants at risk 50% yeah. of them because I mean, they can of, be very they, they can probably be done at some point by algorithms exactly I mean think about th- think about a job like an accountant yeah. Do you know what I mean yeah. like they're, they're, think about a lawyer imagine a computer that understands intimately all of the yeah. sort of chess moves that could be made yeah. in a court of law. And that's, like, that's possible. That, that, it's, it's, no, it's possible to do that. So, I mean, the big, the, sort of the big surge in automation is happening in like agricultural economies, like mm-hmm. automation and farming. Like that's having a, that is actually having a marked economic impact. But the big shift in terms of, you know, job losses is still manufacturing to servicing that's still a bigger economic impact, particularly in like the United States. Yeah. Um, although I don't know, what does that look like with the level of unemployment that's going to exist after coronavirus? And I think I this is where Ben's article is dead interesting. What were you yeah. going to say? Yeah, I just, I, I, um, I, I believe that the, the official US unemployment rate is now well above 30 million. Yeah. But that, the thing about the US labor market is it's so poorly regulated and there's such a large area of like undocumented labor as well yeah. that the figure is almost certainly much higher than that. Yeah. Very much I mean, higher. 
for the UK, there are some economists that are predicting like a third, like thirty, like around about thirty percent, thirty three percent of the economy, um, like which is the Great actors, Depression, which yeah. yeah, which is the Great Depression. So this is why, like, I think Ben's article is important because I mean, what, like, the Tory government are going to have to deal with this. So whilst, in one sense. There, there's still that you know unemployment as a factor of capitalism you know as that being their their politics mm-hmm. like to try to deal with that degree of unemployment is is going to need direct state intervention the thing that's most obvious to me about the Kalecki's analysis that doesn't really fit is that when there have been like high periods of employment. So that's what we're told now is that we have like, you know, a decent degree of employment. Before this crisis anyway. Before this, yeah, pre-crisis is that there hasn't been strength in labor power. You know, you've had like massive amounts of in-work poverty. Wages have stagnated since 2008. Mm. Um, And really this, this secret of success for the ruling class uh, and suppressing wages with high employment is that jobs were precarious. So yeah. that threat of being out of work was, I mean, it is, it still is, even more now so is, is really strong and that lots of people were employed, but lots and lots of people were employed in low quality, low paid, uh, precarious private sector jobs with no trade union collective bargaining coverage and really mm. weak rights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is obviously, it's, it's the the way in which the labour market was restructured during the austerity years is really interesting. Mm. Some of the stuff, I mean, the bogus self-employment stuff is just the most crazy part of it. I mean, there are loads of jobs out there that basically don't exist, that aren't drawing an income. I mean, there's some really weird stuff going out there because of Tory social engineering, because of their desperate attempt to prove that they are that we're a nation of entrepreneurs. They've just cooked up a body of ludicrous schemes, uh, which are totally irrational, um, and which have left millions of people out of pocket. I mean, if you were to believe the official statistics, you'd probably believe there was something like seven million registered small businesses in the United mm-hmm. Kingdom or something. The real figure is much smaller than that. And of the small businesses that do exist so many of them are unviable this is and this is but this is the big risk i think um for the vast majority of ordinary people is that the tories will let this rip like they will let it just like roar through the economy to you know clear out zombie firms and all do you know what i mean like that will be part of their um considerations for sure for sure yeah. But like all of the, uh, all of the, and it's not just the Tories, you know, it, it, it's bigger than that, but like all of the current like neoliberal state method of operation, the way that the central bank is used to, to intervene like near, on a near permanent basis and globalization, all of that is under such strain now. Um, the idea that, you know, GDP can continue to grow through private credit expansion do you know what i mean Mm. like that's when that stops like how is the government going to deal with the fallout of that so i mean even the institute of fiscal studies is talking about new deal type economics like mega intervention on a non-profit making 
basis. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's a, there's a lot to be explored in Ben's article. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting intervention um, into the, the current state of the economy. And I think it's one of those areas where the left isn't really up to speed yet on the scale of well, that's well. How, I mean, how could we be, you know, <laughs> given that we've now got real opposition? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I just think that, like, these calls for UBI, like, I under, I think there's a wider debate to be had on that, and you know, talking about UBI, fine, right? But that's honestly not a serious answer when you're talking about a third of people in the UK unemployed. Yeah, we and actually, yeah. even even if that UBI was set at a reasonable-ish rate, right, like it was 800 quid a month or something, and I don't think that's going to be on the table, that would, to lose a third of jobs and replace that with, say, 500 to 1,000 quid worth of handouts is not a transfer of, it's not like for like. I mean, the, the average uh, income in Scotland, I think, is 24, 25,000 yeah. pounds a year. So to, to trade that in for um, a handout of very much less a month is not an, uh, it's not a just situation. I think people are a little bit o- too overawed by this idea of the universality of UBI. Yeah, I, I get that, but it's, we have to think about how much wealth and power our class currently has before we decide yeah. what we're giving away and letting go. Well, this is, I mean, I have my own questions of UBI, but one of the, the main things that it says to me is that it gives the working class absolutely no power or control. Mm. No power or control. And that to me like, is a fundamental flaw of it. But I mean, that is a whole can of worms that we probably don't have time for yeah. at this point. But let's put it on the to-do list for, for the next one. Sure, let's do. Um, is there anything you would like to say finally? No, I think I think I think we're done. I think we're about one minute from another Zoom call we had. <laughs> it's great, um, it? Yeah, I mean, I keep wanting to do like a Jerry Springer style sign off. Oh, does he do a little monologue at the end? What, Jerry what Springer. I never, I've never, I mean, I probably. No, he it. always just said, uh, "Take care of yourself." and of each other. <laughs> <laughs> Self-care of yourself. Yeah. And follow forget about stars, the others. Follow Keir Starmer's advice. Wrap yourself in a blanket. Adopt the turtle position. Adopt the turtle position and forget about all the dying nurses. And only clap when the cameras are watching. Only clap when the cameras are watching, yeah. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs>